And I'd be looking around and I'd be trying to tell the whole story in one image, even if I didn't have a camera. So if you're walking through the woods on a windy day, how do you give the feeling of the wind blowing and the leaves going by and the rustling in the trees? You know, and it, it often, it's, it's more an emotional. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today we are going up to Toronto, Canada. Today we are talking with Harvey Shipper. Harvey is not only a remarkable photographer, he is an oncologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He's also an industrial engineer, a trio of occupations that is just amazing to put all together. He is more than anything else, however, a storyteller. Everything about his photography, everything about his imagery really seeks to tell uh, some kind of narrative, some kind of deeper meaning. And it's work that I find personally tremendously, tremendously compelling. Harvey, how are you doing today? What's life like up in Canada? We're pretty good in Canada. We're faking the start to winter. Some days it's a little <laughs> below zero and the other times it's uh, plus eight or nine centigrade, which for Toronto in December is a bit bizarre, but hey, there's no ice. Yeah, well, we're having the same thing down here in Minnesota. Winter, winter has taken a little bit of a vacation here at the beginning, but I think it's coming up pretty soon. Harvey, your work just knocks my socks off. I love this kind of stuff. And, and I want to get to the images. I want to get to your book here in, in just a second. But I was doing my research and I came upon a story in your writing that I just think is, is wonderful. You talk about the early days of your um, photographic passion. And you talk about, you know, spending all the hours in the dark room, 2 a.m., the principal coming to, you know, wonder who's in there. But there's a story I've never heard before, and I, and I want you to retell it. There's, there came a point in your life where you had to decide between photography and canoeing. How in the world did that ever come up? Well, it, it's one of the <laughs> uh, favorite stories of our marriage, actually. We had moved uh, from Toronto to Winnipeg, where we then spent about 21 years, and we bought a house. And I had started to play again with my camera. I'd set it aside during the university years because life was kind of busy, you know. We were refurbishing the house, um, and my wife and I started to have a conversation. I said, you know, I love canoeing, and I taught canoeing at one point, but I also like photography, and we've only got budget for so much. And we went back and forth and we decided, you know what, I can always rent a canoe, and it's rather seasonal in Manitoba, so why don't we put in a darkroom uh, in the basement? So we did, and we actually put in a zebra chrome color darkroom. And the family joke thereafter was, remember, you said I was an engineer and a physician, and my wife would say to friends, yeah, you know, when all the other guys are out carousing, I've got them locked in a dark room in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> smart choice. Smart it was choice. a very smart choice. And uh, I became pretty proficient at the Cibrachrome. And my first show was a Cibrachrome show. And, uh, you know, I had a, an automated system. You could buy an automated Cibrachrome processor. 
But when you think about it, uh, on a really, really successful session, uh, I'd be in this dark room, and if I was lucky, I'd come out with two or three good prints. And I did that for many years. In fact, I still have a few Cibachromes around. Uh, but that was the story of the dark room. And I continued with Cibachrome until uh, about 1999 when we moved back to our native city of Toronto. And uh, I decided to start to go digital. I gave the dark room to, um, to uh, a school in town, which used it for many years thereafter. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. What was the appeal of photography just at the very beginning? I mean, was it the storytelling? Was it just the technical side? How did you get started in just the whole realm of artwork to begin with? I went to a wonderful high school in Toronto called Oakwood Collegiate. And it had a photography club that happened to be staff-led by uh, my grade nine science teacher. And he said, come on along. And through a few donors and uh, a little bit of cash that people had, they had a pretty remarkable collection of equipment. Uh, there was a Graflex, there were a couple of uh, Rolleflexes, there was a nice black and white darkroom with, I think, two or three enlargers. That's where I got into trouble that night. And um, I got started. And I really enjoyed it. And, and I guess... I guess there was a kind of artistic creative piece to it because I remember one of the jobs that fell to us in the camera club was taking pictures of the football team. And uh, everybody for many years had been taking pictures of all 48 people in one big photograph. And I had this brilliantly inventive idea of why don't I divide them into the offense and the defense and make two photographs, double our sales and have people have bigger pictures. And that was the sort of start of fooling around. And then we had little photography shows from time to time. And I got so interested that I nearly screwed up my academics. And uh, that's how it started. And uh, then in university years, because I was doing other things, uh, I had my camera with me. When I traveled, I shot a bit of film, but it was expensive, right? It was like right. 25 cents a right. shot. So I learned to be really careful. But along the way, I got to meet some remarkable people like Yusuf Karsh, uh, who would come and talk to us in small groups at the University of Toronto in the day. So, that you know, the seed was there. You know, you, 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 you talk about meeting people and, and the influence of teachers. Your work today is, is not group shots of sports teams uh, at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, on your um, Sachi art, art page, you say, people say, what's your style? And you say it's painterly, soft colors, abstract gestures, a more mood and tone than documentation. And I'm reading in, in some of your other work, uh, you had a teacher named Freeman Patterson, yeah. who you say introduced you to spiritual, meditative vision of photography. Okay, how do you get from taking pictures of the football team to spiritual, meditative photography and abstract gestures? It's a good question. Maybe I grew up a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know, I would go for a walk, I'd go on the canoe trip, I'd do one of these things, and I'd be looking around and I'd be trying to somehow tell the whole story in one image, even if I didn't have a camera. 
So if you're walking through the woods on a windy day, how do you give the feeling of the wind blowing and the leaves going by and the rustling in the trees? You know, and it, it often, it's, it's more an emotional than a documentary kind of thing. So I guess that's where it started. And, and uh, Freeman Patterson was a very interesting, is a very interesting fellow. He trained as a theologian and used his camera as a spiritual device and uh, has a, you know, is a very famous Canadian photographer and his stuff can be very concrete, but it's all very spiritual. What, what's, what's the glow coming from this kind of thing? And then along the line, I spent a little bit of time working with Jay Mizell. And Jay Mizell, of course, is the famous photographer of New York, among other things. And his stuff is not so much painterly as more documentary, but, you know, vibrant colors. You know, his famous picture of, of the Eiffel Tower was a U.S. postage stamp, for example. And somehow those two ideas merged with me. And I started trying to make it happen. Uh, so it wasn't being absolutely concrete. I would take people for a walk, and I, I and th this is actually how the book took its root. People would say to me, how do you take those photographs? You know, I got this new camera, and it's got this button and that button and all the other buttons, and I'm scared the hell out of it that it's going to blow up if I don't do the right thing. And, and I said, you know what? Your camera is good enough that I want you to turn it on. I want you to put it on P and I want you to forget it. And now let's go and take, go for a walk and take pictures that tell a story. And it can be about your walk in the woods. It can be something you see. And I impose a little exercise at the beginning of this. And what I say is I want you to take your little camera that's set on P and I want you to sit somewhere. And in some respects, the less photographically stimulating the place you pick, the better. And I want you to sit there for a good long time until you, since it's digital and cheap, have shot 50 images. And they come back and, and what inevitably happens is at the beginning, you know, they're struggling and then gradually they start to see the small detail or a set of juxtapositions of things. And by the end of 50, they've got two or three pictures. They say, I would have never seen that before. And then I take the exercise the next step with them. And I say, I want you to go into your kitchen and I want you to get three eggs. And you can boil them or not, it's up to you. But I want you to repeat exactly the same gesture with three eggs, only this time you can move. Oh, I love it. So f 50 images of three eggs. 50 images of three eggs. And you can do whatever you want. And yes, there's some people who've given me a picture of a fried egg. And there are other people who have, you know, juxtaposed the eggs to rocks or to the one was a roast chicken that someone put beside their egg, you know, or others have done soft focus stuff just looking at those rounded forms. So it's all about seeing, seeing not necessarily strictly concretely, but seeing almost a spiritual kind of thing. Okay. I mean, you're leading into two things that I want to talk about here. You know, one being 
you know, you, you say somewhere in your work that an image need not be explicit. So I, I want to get to that in a minute. I want to tell everybody who's listening, the book we're talking about, I forgot to mention this, is called Of Light, An Invitation to Photographic Storytelling. Um, you can get it on Amazon. It looks to be an absolutely you know, wonderful and engaging series of meditations and lessons. A uh, little bit of tech in there, not very much, but really compelling. Harvey, I mean, let me ask you an impossible question here. A, a photograph, an image is by definition, you know, a still, a single image. We're not talking about, you know, montages here or, you know, motion pictures. What, what in a single image, how are you defining a story? How, how, does, how can a single image tell a story? Well, the first thing it has to do is capture your attention, right? And there are lots of ways to do that. Uh, and to be cynical, all you have to do is take a black and white picture and put a big red blob in it, and everybody will look at it for a moment. <laughs> but then you got to go past that and says, okay, you've come into the picture. What else is there in the picture that engages me and gives me depth about this that's more than the red blob? Right? What makes me come back and look for more? So, for example... One of my pictures is, is uh, a picture, a graffiti picture taken in Toronto. And what captures you at the front is this brilliant piece of graffiti of a woman uh, with her white hands, uh, white face, uh, and red eyes that occupies about two thirds of the image. And then there's a little window off to the side where you're looking under an archway. And if you look carefully, you actually see a real person, a homeless person, sitting under the archway. So there's the story. So is, is the story primarily in the image or is it transactional? Is it between the viewer and discovering the elements of the image? Well, it's both. And let me tell you a story about that. I mean, one of the fascinations for me about having a show you know, uh, someone once said to me, God, you're doing a, a photography show. It's like standing in, in front of people without your clothes on. And, and I said, no, Al, not really. But what's particularly fascinating to me is how people make their own stories of one of my images. You've heard now me talk about that image. It was an image I didn't share with you uh, that was taken... Um, in an art studio in, in uh, Tel Aviv a number of years ago, and it's a whole bunch of sculptures of people in a room, and there's one such sculpture that's hanging high up on a window ledge. And this, uh, in a sense, is a Holocaust story. So I took that image, and I put it in a show uh, that I uh, did a number of years ago. And at the last day of the show, a young woman came in, and she said, I'd like to buy that. I said, sure. And, you know, the transaction was done. And she said, do you want to know why, why I want to buy that? I said, I'd love to know. She said, well, here's what it means to me. I'm an intensive care nurse who's been um, off unwell on um, uh, leave for stress and depression. And I've now recovered. And this picture speaks to my recovery. That oh, I, I know the picture. It, it, it's a haunting picture, and I can see why somebody would have that. But that was never in your mind when you were taking it. Does that no, matter? But, but isn't that the fascinating thing? It is. 
I mean, if you're doing advertising photography and you want to sell someone toothpaste, well, then what you put in the picture, you want the viewer to put in the picture. Thank you. Buy that toothpaste. But for me as a photographer, yeah, I want to tell a story, but I want to engage you so that you make your own story. Oh, man. Um let, let's stay with some of the images for a minute, because, you know, storytelling is, is at the heart of what we're talking about here. And I think that's really, really one of the things that, that is most powerful about your work. We talked a little bit before we started recording about an image that has a, a little Dow Chemical um, <laughs> yeah. piece, piece of metal in it. This is What is that thing, by the way? I mean, I'm looking at it right now, but it's, it's a little copper tag on a wire or what's the... What, physically, what is that thing? So uh, I was in Costa Rica on a trip with some friends uh, where in 10 days we covered most of Costa Rica. And there's a quite remarkable environmental university on the um, Caribbean coast of Costa Rica. And they do some quite wonderful stuff. And in the um, sort of a walkway uh, between the buildings, there's a kind of honor roll, you know, and, and it looks like a branch of a tree and it's got lots of little leaves on it, these copper things, for people who, or organizations, pardon me, who've donated. So I was there taking pictures, minding my own bloody business, trying to take, you know, mood pictures. And I look and I see this Dow Chemical leaf, obviously Dow Chemical had made a donation, but holy cow, sitting on that thing, is a giant grasshopper who has left a message. <laughs> and yes, I, think, no, I, can't, I can't resist this. You know, this is almost Mel Brooks. So that's what the picture is. And it's created a fair bit of attention. I can tell you Dow has not made any donations to me. <laughs> but, you know, for everybody who has a point of view... I just, I just couldn't resist. And that's the notion. I think that's where whoever taught me to, to sit in one space and, and shoot 50 pictures or take pictures of eggs, and I'll do that exercise in one way or another myself to get the brain going, the ability to suddenly see something is kind of trained. And I just saw that. And it's a one-off. I think I took two frames in case I was out of focus, but that was mm -hmm. it. It's, and, and there is obviously, you know, a story there. There is um, an environmental story. There's a corporate story. It's also, um, you know, serendipitously, you know, beautiful colors. I, I love the orange background, the green grasshopper, all that stuff. And, and one of the things I, I, I'm really impressed with, with this story is the fact that this is an accident. This is you're walking by and you just see something. Another picture that I'm looking at of yours, you know, is the one of the school children in front of lockers. Oh, yeah. Um, which, at least from my looking at it, has to be another one of those moments you're just walking by and something's going on. So, you know, quick, let me get the camera. Tell me the story of this one. Well, a bunch of years ago, uh, I was invited uh, to Japan to give a, one of those famous lectures. And... Uh, they were kind enough to bring uh, my wife and my two daughters, who were then about um, uh, five and nine. And they said, how would you like to go to and visit a, uh, a Japanese public school? 
And we said, hey, that would be wonderful. Well, why don't your two daughters put together a little presentation of some sort and we'll all go. So we went to this uh, school that was sort of in the suburbs of Tokyo. And what I hadn't realized at the time, and I'd traveled a great deal, is that the Japanese were very used to adult, you know, white guys walking around, foreigners. But they'd had very little exposure to young children who weren't Japanese. So we walk into this school and my two daughters are with us and we're walking by the lockers and there are these kids seeing this close encounters of the third kind and there's a whole series of pictures that look like that but they were seeing something they had never seen before let's take just a quick break We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. You know, there's not a bit of that you can guess from looking at the image. But looking at the image, what you do see is curiosity and glee and surprise, a little bit of nervousness. I mean, it really does ask you as a viewer to sort of make up the story that caused this moment. Exactly. Uh, And and there's another piece to it. Uh, One of the things Jay Mizell always taught is that everybody? when everybody is looking left, you look right. The natural photograph is to be taking pictures of my kids. Something, maybe Jay, inspired me to look there. Oh, that's great. Um, in, in the table of contents for your book, you make a distinction. You talk about stories in an instant and stories over time. What's the difference? Well... The one we were just talking about is a story in an instant. But one of the other exercises is to really come to know an environment, whatever it is, over time, and take a series of pictures to tell the story. So in the book, the example I use is a series of pictures along a beach in Florida. My in-laws had a place they rented on Longboat Key, which is on the Gulf side. And it has this gorgeous manicured beach, which in some respects I found rather sterile. I mean, beautiful, but, you know, manicured, you know, perfectly. And I uh, gave myself an exercise. I said, okay, I'm here for a while. I'm going to have a wonderful time with my in-laws and the kids, I think, came on this trip. But what I want to do is look at this place over time and what can it tell me over time. So the first thing I did is I kind of triangulated a spot. And I said, we're going to go to that spot in one way or another every day and shoot the different moods of this spot. And from there, the story expanded a little like the eggs. 
And suddenly I said, well, you know, I'm taking pictures of these waves and I, you know, got some quite nice photographs of, of the waves. And then I said, hmm, wait a minute. Look what's going on with the grasses on the beach in the wind. And I would come out now early in the morning because you had the very low light casting long shadows, but enough brightness that you had some detail. And the wind would have blown the grasses into the sand overnight and you'd get these patterns. So I said, all right, we've gone from the waves to the grasses. And uh, in the end, a couple of the grasses have been sold as uh, six by nine foot prints. And then I said, now, now what happens when people start to invade this scene? And it ends up with another print I've sold, which is of a, a guy going down the beach, carrying weights, you know, with a bright yellow bathing suit and, and, you know, a couple of other people looking at him like he's a bit weird. So it's that kind of evolutionary story. This is, this is, you know, but, but it's a theme I'm going to tell you about in that case, this beach. And, and to be clear, you didn't set up the camera looking in, at the same point of view every single shot. I mean, no, you no. basically, yeah, you stood in the middle of a circle more or less and yeah, yeah. took shots all around. Yeah. yeah. As, as you're doing that, are you discovering the story? How, I mean, oh, how, I mean, how much sure. of your work is, is, is trusting there is a story there and looking for it versus, oh, I see a story, let me go get it? Well, this gets to my notion of resonance, right? Aha. It goes both ways. <laughs> right? I'm sitting there on the beach and the obvious thing that everybody does go when they get on the beach is they go and shoot a picture of the waves. Right? That's what people do. And um, uh, that's fine. And if I, you look at the first picture I took, guess what? It's a picture of a wave. Whee! Uh, but then I sort of say, well, what else can I learn about the waves? And I start using them as abstract art objects. So I may do a, now I, now I take the camera off P, give me credit. And I will run a longer, maybe 10th of a second or a fifth of a second, maybe usually handheld. And suddenly you're sensing the motion and you know how the colors can jump out at you when you do that kind of thing. Uh, and now I'm starting to get into the feel of the waves or there's one picture in that series. It's not in the ones you've got where I'm just taking picture of, a picture of raindrops falling on these ocean waves. And there I freeze them. So, okay, I, I, I've now sort of told you about the various textures and things that you might not have seen unless you started to look. And hey, the waves interact with the beach. So how's the beach reacting? The beach is interacting with the waves. So now I go and look at the beach and this is where these wind sculptures come from. And I look further at the beach, and lo and behold, there, there are creatures on that beach. So there may be a picture of um, a pelican or something else, and it's not just a picture of a pelican, but a pelican in the environment, disappearing in a sense philosophically into the environment, not separate from the environment. And, that, and there's one picture I have that, that uh, is in the collection. It hasn't sold for obvious reasons, but it's of the, of the remains of a pelican in the sand. So that's what stories over time are. But when you're thinking of stories over time, are you normally thinking of a series? I mean, as a, as a thematically unified series or just, you know, let, let's see what comes. 
I'm omnivorous. So it's, it's kind of let's what see what comes. And sometimes one picture can, in my mind, tell the whole story. And other times it's the series that's another thing. And I've sold some series. But sometimes, uh, I think there's a picture I sent you, uh, number 16, where that's a picture in an instant. It's the whole story all at once. Now you go figure it out. It takes place, here I am walking with my camera, I'm in Santa Fe, and uh, I think we wanted to go into the hotel to use the facilities or see if there was a pool or something. And I'm standing there with my camera, and I see this utterly movie set scene. There's this woman in bright pink, sort of lying on a, a chaise lounge in the lap of a guy. And facing her, more or less, is another, you know, chaise lounge that's empty. And there's a fellow with a suitcase standing there, completely, determinately oblivious. <laughs> yeah, he, he's clearly intending not to pay attention. Right. <laughs> I think that's a story in one image. You know, taking 20 of them isn't going to make it better. Well, okay, that that is a wonderful point because you know sometimes we go out to do a series and the one image tells it all, and then it's, okay, I'm done. You know, more more is not more at that point. You mentioned a couple things that I want to go back to, and first is the the softness of some of of your recent work, and and again the statement that an image need not be explicit. What is for you uh, the aesthetic of the watercolor feel, the soft focus, the, the, the less than 100% on the texture bar? It's the sense of, probably to put too strong a word on it, humility and awe. Okay, I like that. Um, the uh, picture that you've got that I think is, is number 20, is one of those, and then even number 26. Well, let, let's talk about 20 for a little bit, and we'll, we'll include it with uh, um, the stuff here on the podcast. Beautiful, beautiful image of some green grasses in front of a, um, looks like a body of water, a small pond, maybe a river going by, and then some foliage in the background, mostly with purple hues uh, or lavender hues. But th this is watercolor, absolutely. Tell me the story of this image. So... There's one that sits right beside it of a hut. And they're both taken within 30 seconds of one another. And this is uh, uh, in Ontario at a place we were staying in one drenching summer rainstorm. And I wanted to give a sense of this rainstorm of being out there. And, you know, if you're in one of these rainstorms, nothing is clear. It's all a blur because this water is pouring down. So I did slow down my shutter speed a little bit because I didn't want to freeze the raindrops. And when uh, I sold one of those, uh, the, the one with the grasses, uh, as a six by nine or roughly large print, the people who do my very large-scale printing said, what did you do to manipulate that photograph? It looks like a Monet. Mm -hmm, it does. I said, nothing. 
But you put it, you put it next to the picture of the, I mean, the hut's very photorealistic. I mean, th there is, you know, th this little building, it's a downpour. The colors are all pretty much, you know, what we would expect. This one of the grasses does look, you know, very much like a painting. Yeah. Um, you just turned to your left a little bit and shot again. I mean, now that you say the two pictures are next to each other, I can see that. But this is not what I would have expected had I not heard you say that. I, I mean, I love both of them. As a matter of fact, are those are the grasses in the hut picture the grasses I see in the other one? No, it's about 90 degrees apart. Oh, okay. And fortunately, I was standing under a shelter because otherwise I would have needed a new camera. <laughs> oh, I, I went for weather sealed with my last one. I don't know if that's going to actually help. but uh, th th This was uh, sort of like the rainstorms we've been hearing about lately. It was a summer rainstorm. And the magic was, of course, it wasn't the middle of the night. And it wasn't a deep, dark day. It was a thunderstorm. And so you had a lot of ambient light that lit it up. So literally, I did nothing to that photograph. You know, you say you slowed down the shutter speed a little bit, but you say many times, you know, in, in the stuff that people can see online, that you are not opposed to the automatic setting on cameras. Correct. Um, and, you know, so many people get into the tech. Uh, why, why have you developed such a faith in the automatic setting? Because I would rather take the picture than miss it fiddling with the dials. Okay. Have you, have you missed pictures that way? I'm sure I have. <laughs> but, you know, when I go for walks with people, they say to me, so do I have to have it at F8 or should it be F11? Or and I say, wait a minute. The technology is so powerful now. Just take the picture. And, you know, we can work on it in post-production, but the stuff is so damn good now. It's not like the days of, of, of Kodachrome when you had, what, three stops you could play with? Here you've got, pick your number, 10 stops. There are all sorts of things you can do afterwards if that's what you choose to do. But if you, if you decide you have to have complete technical mastery of all the knobs and dials before you start taking pictures, you're never really going to take pictures. So you know what? Let's go and put it on P and take pictures. And now let's say we're talking about um, the grasses you sort of say, okay, here's a time to break the rule a little bit. We're going to use one technique. What are we going to do? We're going to slow down the shutter a little bit. But let, let the camera take about, worry about everything else. Don't worry about the f-stop. You know, use the technology as your slave. Don't be a slave to the technology. Oh, man. Big idea, big question now. You make a big point of talking about resonance. And you know, it says in the description of your book that resonance is the quality that suggests an image maker is in tune uh, with the story when the shutter opens, being totally connected, channeling the moment. A lot of sort of you know, spiritual language here. What, what for you is resonance and, and how can I go looking for it? So I do an interesting experiment with my students when I have them and, and when I teach from the book. At one point, we're talking about resonance. I've got three pairs of images and all three are technically good images. In fact, they're of very similar, if not identical subjects. And one of them 
to my eye is a postcard photograph or a, uh, in the case of a couple of orchids, a catalog photograph. And another, somehow you've connected. There's a, it's clear that someone isn't just posing for a photograph, but someone is communicating with you. And maybe even the orchid is communicating with you. So uh, the couple of examples that I, you know, use are one of the pictures that you have is number four or five, which is the, are the Kenyan girls. It can be the black and white of the color or the last image in the series, which is another mother and child taken in Thailand. So they're a mother and child photograph in traditional dress posed almost the same way against similar backgrounds and what's interesting is my students all say one of them is a nice postcard, but one of them is there. She's telling you something. And it's a sense that somehow you manage to connect. And I can tell you, you can go for days on end and not do it. But on some days, it just happens. And the exercises you use to see, to visualize, to slow down, help it happen. But but how do you, how do you know? I mean, because I can look at all three of those shots and claim that they are you know nearly faultless. How how do you know when that extra quality is present? Well, technically, I think they're nearly faultless. But which is the picture you're going to come back at and want to explore more? And. Uh, if you talk about the uh, orchid picture, for example, I've tried it with people. The you know the the picture of of the their white orchids, all of them, uh, white orchids in the black background. They said, "Well, now I know that you know that's this kind of orchid, and I like it, and I think I'm going to go and buy it." And they look at the other one and they say, "My goodness, there's so much more to see here. Let me look further." You know, when, when I hear that, I always have to smile because you can always examine the photo a little bit more. But in doing so, what there's more to see, for me at least, is, is my own reaction, is, is what depths of, of my own psychology um, are finding some kind of resonance exactly. in the image. Exactly. And I mean, I know nothing about any of the women in these pictures or about those flowers, but boy, they are profound artistic experiences for me, you know, just like the grasses are in the other one. What, you know, what are you working on now? I mean, because we're, we're in a time where your other life has got to be just consuming every hour of your day. You know, while we're recording this, COVID is still up there. You're working in a hospital. It, it's, how are you finding time to be a photographer? Well, I'm fortunate in a, in a kind of way because I'm of an agent stage where my younger, smarter colleagues have said, you know what, you're going to be our resource person. You're going to be our gray hair and you're going to work virtually. We don't want to put you on the front line. Uh, so that's been my role. And, uh, you know, helping, um, you know, us uh, manage, uh, if you will, the health policy in, in my part of the world and uh, interacting with patients uh, virtually. So I have my own patients. Or for a period of time when uh, there was concern about uh, people in hospital might being exposed potentially to COVID, 
my role was to connect with them on a regular basis, see how they're doing, make sure that they weren't uh, becoming symptomatic of COVID. This is about a year and a half ago when it was even scarier. And so that's been my role. You know, being the professor uh, of a certain age gives you that privilege. It's with uh, huge gratitude uh, for the people who aren't in this kind of sheltered time. And it does give me a little time to get the camera out, not a heck of a lot. So what I've actually been doing photographically uh, is stuff pretty much local. I haven't been on an airplane in a very long time. Interestingly enough, uh, I was shooting with um, someone you know, Mark Siegel, the other day, shooting some graffiti under that bridge not far from us because they're telling a current story. And I wander around with my camera when I can. It's my meditation, you know. Uh, If I've had enough of all this COVID stuff, I will pick up my camera and go for a walk and see what I can see, see what it can tell me. I say, look look for stories and tell stories of your own. I love it. Well, Harvey, this has been fascinating. Thank you very much. I am a great fan of your work, everybody. You got to go look at it. Thank you very much. The honor is mine. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.